love it. <laughs> now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of the country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the, with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yes, you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Awesome. Well done. Thanks, Sophie. Um going there. Okay, show of hands, how many people hosted family for Christmas? Quite a few. We did, which was awesome, because I'm really fortunate. We're one of those families, we're quite gushy and mushy, and we actually really get on spectacularly well. It hasn't always been that way, um, particularly between me and my younger brother. <clears throat> it started badly, because um, when they brought my brother home, I was on the old I've got a younger sister, two years younger than me, and then you'll see there at the front of the line, the younger brother is four years younger than me. So I'm four years old. They bring this little thing home from the hospital, and they explain to me, he's called a redhead. I'd never seen a baby glow in the dark before. So this, I mean, this is pre-Chernobyl. This was just totally strange for me. He was like a fat little white Duracell battery and he just vomited and he was horrible and I mean he just took all of that love and affection from my parents away from me 
And so I have to confess, we get on spectacularly well now, but growing up, I wasn't as nice as what I could have been to him. And I think in particular, telling him he must have been adopted probably was going too far. Today, we're going to look at another story that Sophie just read, and it's just a, a really well-known parable in our summer series through, through January. We're just going to be grabbing snapshots out of the Gospels, and the one we're going to look at today, it's a very well-known parable, a parable of what we call the prodigal son. And there's just some just amazingly beautiful pictures that we find in this parable, and I think there's some really challenging for us as well. So if you if you're not there already, I'd love you to turn with me to Luke chapter 15. A couple of really that we have to have in our minds when we read the parable of or what I'm going to call the two sons. The first thing is the context. And that's why it's so important that when you read the parable of the prodigal son, you have a look at verses one and two as well. So context is really important. And then the fact that there are three characters is also really important. So as we go through today, you've got to remember those two things, and three characters. So to start with the context, we read that the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear him, that's Jesus. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law uttered, this man welcomes sinners, and he even eats with them, which is going beyond, that's not association, that's quite a warm welcome. There's a relationship side when you actually sit down and eat with someone at your table. These, the religious hierarchy of Jesus' day were clearly upset about this. And him saying, how can you do this? And so in response to that, Jesus gives three parables. The first one being a parable about a shepherd who leaves 99% of his flock out in the open field at risk to go and seek out one and bring him back and rejoices when he finds his lost sheep. Second parable, a lady who has 10 coins, she loses one and she tips her house upside down to find that one lost coin and she rejoices when she finds it. And we get to today's parable and Jesus ups the stakes even further. It's one thing to lose a sheep or a coin. It's quite another thing to have a lost child. So that's the context for today. Jesus is, is sending a message to the Pharisees, drawing a difference between their heart towards welcoming sinners and his, which he's going to be comparing to God's. First thing, the context. Second thing, when we hit in one, starts in verse 11. It's continued, his third parable now. There was a man who had two sons. And this is going to be really important. Okay, We call this the parable of the prodigal son, but just remember there are three characters we're dealing with, a father and two sons. And immediately in scene one, Jesus says, introduces the story with something that would just be so shocking to his Jewish hearers. Because he says the younger son, the younger one, the younger of the two sons, said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Now, in that day, um, a father's estate when he died would be divided up and the children would receive a share each, but the older brother would get a double share, the reason being that he would have had the responsibility more to care for the father through his life. So two sons, the older one would be due two-thirds, the younger one would be due one-third when the father died. So this is a kid who is saying to his father, 
I, I want the stuff that's due to me when you die. But I want it now. Unheard of. It's an incredible insult. Just thinking as well that the father's, the father's farm, his, his land holdings, this was his identity in the community. This was his life. And we see that when we read that he, he divided his property between them, that word property is bios. He divided his life between them. Imagine the upheaval. You own a farm, you have to sell a third of your farm because one of your kids has come to you and says, Dad, I want your stuff but I don't want you. He's effectively saying, Dad, I wish you were dead because I just want it now. Incredible insult. Historians say the normal response for a Middle Eastern patriarch would be to drive the son out of the house. This is just unheard of insolence. Drive him out with verbal, if not even physical blows. But that's not what the father does. He divides his property between them. Not long after that, we go on. The son gathers up everything that he has, everything, so he's not leaving anything behind, not planning on going home. And it says that he set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. Try and picture the scene. This is happening at the moment. University students are heading off to university, first time away from mum and dad. Multiply that a thousand times and you get what we have here. This is a kid who has a wagon full of cash and a head full of dreams. He is just drunk on freedom, flush with funds. He turns up in town and his gold and silver coins are just splashing through the streets, through the marketplaces, through the bars. He is just intoxicated on this. He is living the most incredible, awesome, lavish student party life you could ever imagine. And that is exactly what prodigal means. When we talk about the parable of the prodigal son, prodigal doesn't mean returning. Prodigal doesn't mean lost. It doesn't mean repentant. Prodigal means wastefully, lavishly extravagant. So we're describing his lifestyle. He's off squandering everything that he'd received. After, though, the last copper coin leaves his pocket, we read in verse 14, after he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. Verse 15, so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Again, this would just be anathema to the Jews who are sitting here listening to Jesus. Not only does, does the idea of famine strike fear into, the, into their hearts, this was such a big deal. There's no welfare scheme in this day. This is an agrarian economy. People depend on just living from the farms and everything that's going on. Famine was terrible. But the response of this young man in response to, to eat, eat out and he fed pigs, it's not just that pigs are not exactly the base ingredient for cologne. They're not just that they're dirty. The thing that was so horrible for them is that pigs were ceremonially unclean. They were religiously unclean animals. Not just that they were physically dirty, but God had said, you guys don't eat pork. Jews don't eat pork today. Muslims don't eat pork today. They're a religiously unclean animal. Even to touch a pig carcass meant that you were banned from the temple that day. You just couldn't do it. It's a religiously unclean animal. So, so to have a job 
where your job is to feed the pigs. It's, it's, it's an incredible fall from grace. And Jesus' hearers would have just been wincing. This guy is down in the muck as he could possibly be. But think about what's going on in his head as well. He had been the man. He had just been a star. He had had class. He'd wandered around. He probably started splashing out on the wardrobe, you know, the hand-tailored sandals. And they probably came to him and said, Sir, would you like the latest Pierre Cardin robe? Maybe a sundial, a wrist sundial from Jacques Cartier. And some Gucci saddle bags, sir, would look wonderful on that stallion of a donkey of yours. And he'd, he'd gazed around him, and people wanted to be with him. They laughed at his jokes. You know, he looked out, and he saw the smiling faces of the beautiful crowd. He was in the in crowd. And now when he looks around, he sees the southern end of north-facing pigs. He is as low as he could possibly be. He had eaten and drunk like a king, and now they say, you're not even allowed what's in the pig's trough. He had drunk and swum in this ocean of pleasure. But now he's coming to realize just how shallow that ocean is and how shallow the people of that sphere of the world is. Verse 17 says, because of that, he came to his senses. Literally, he came to himself. What I find so fascinating is that sometimes it's when we are the lowest, when we are homesick, when we are suffering, when we're in pain, that we are perhaps humbled enough, perhaps slowed down enough to ask some of the bigger questions in life. C.S. Lewis suffered his fair share of pain and who wrote so brilliantly, wrote in his book, The Problem of Pain, that God whispers to us in our pleasures, consciences, but he shouts in our pain. Pain is his megaphone to rouse a dead world. I read this week, someone else said it, that pain plants the flag of reality in the fortress of a rebel's heart. Pain plants the flag of reality in the fortress of a rebel's heart. Most of us would not go looking for pain. We don't like trials, but when we see a situation like this and when we see myriad other situations in the lives of people around us, when I look at what it took to bring my atheist family to, to slow us down and humble us enough to start even thinking about God questions, I can understand that sometimes a good and a loving God would allow someone to be humbled so terribly, to suffer so greatly as perhaps what the young man in the story did, without being glib, perhaps as much as some of you have or are, will. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but he shouts in our pain. It's his megaphone sometimes to arouse a deaf world. So in verse 17, that arouses the young son, the younger prodigal brother. He came to his senses and he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I know what I'll do. I'll sit out and I'll go back to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be even called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and he went and set off towards his father. What is so fascinating is, 
is that this is just such, a, firstly, a beautiful picture of what the Bible calls repentance. Repentance is just a, fundamentally a change of mind. Here's a guy who recognizes in his head, I've been going down this road, doing this stuff, and it was wrong. I have been wrong. And he changes his mind, and he changes his direction. Genuine repentance is in your head, but genuine repentance always has an outflow. There's something visible that you get to see, normally by a desire not to keep going the wrong way that you were. And this guy, what's so fascinating is that he's so honest about his position. He knows that when he goes home, he's not going back to an inheritance. He's not going back looking for a bedroom. He's not going back looking for a place at the table. And the word he uses when he's planning his speech saying, Father, would you make me like one of your hired men? Key there is that he's not asking even to be an employee. He's using the word, our equivalent today would be like a casual contractor. Someone who you pull in if you've got work for them and you drop them as soon as you want. But the most important thing to understand here is that unlike regular employees on his father's farm, unlike servants, that position would not come with a place on the farm to live. He's not going home looking for a bedroom. He is so honest about his position. He is not going home expecting to deserve anything at all. He is honest about he is showing such a beautiful picture of genuine repentance, changing of mind about going the wrong way and choosing to go the right way. But when we remember again the context, what's Jesus trying to do here? Who's he speaking to? Religious leaders who wouldn't welcome sinners. Religious leaders who look down upon people like the prodigal son. The message then is not even so much about his repentance is about the reaction that he gets when he gets home. And this is where the huge lessons start to come in. Have a look at what happens when he sets off. Verse 20, he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And what stands out here is that this father, remember, who's given up a third of the family farm, everything he's worked for, he's given up a third of his bios, his life, to this son who had wished him dead. He's not sitting on the couch, pouting, grumbling about that darn son who cost me a third of my livelihood, a third of everything I am. He's sitting outside, and he's scanning the horizon. And he's watching, and then one day, in the distance, he sees this shape coming over the horizon. And he thinks he recognizes this person. That, that, that it's a person dressed in rags, but he's got a similar walk to the son that ran away. And then Luke, Jesus says that he did something really unusual. Histor historians tell us he did something that was just really strange. He ran to his son. Middle Eastern patriarchs didn't run. It was undignified. You would have to lift up your robe. You would have to expose your legs. If he had white accountants' versions like this, you can see the loss of dignity, you know. But Middle Eastern patriarchs, particularly those who would own manhood, it was undignified. You didn't do that. But this father ran to his son. He was far more concerned about his son than he was about his dignity than about what people even thought about him. He runs to the son who had wished him dead, and he throws his arms around him, and he kisses him. 
This amazing picture of grace. This amazing contrast to how the religious leaders around Jesus were viewing sinners and tax collectors. The father has hugged his son. The son thinks, okay, it's time for that speech I planned. And so he starts saying in in verse 21, Father, I've, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Father won't even have a bar of it. Cuts in on him, doesn't even let him finish the speech. Look what the father says in verse 22. Quick, bring the best and put it on him. The best robe was probably the father's robe. It's a sign of honor. Think about Joseph in the Technicolor dream coat. Joseph got this amazing robe because Genesis says that Joseph was loved the most. It's a sign of honor. Father goes on, put a ring on his finger. Rings in those days would likely have the family crest on there. It was a way of marking the family sign. It demonstrated authority to transact on the family's behalf. This is saying you are back in the family. And then put sandals on his feet. This one's so simple. Poor people went barefoot. And he's saying, this son of mine is not poor anymore. And then he said, and and kill the fattened calf. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. You get the theme that comes through this chapter? Farmer loses a sheep, finds it again, gets all of his friends around. What do they do? They celebrate. They party. Lady loses one coin, tips the house upside down, finds it, sees that shiny little speck, gets all her friends around. She celebrates. The stakes are as high as what they could be. They thought the son was dead. He's home, and the whole community celebrates. They kill the fattened calf. This was such a big deal. In this day, they didn't live in a land full of herds of, of, of beef like we do. Meat was a delicacy. They didn't eat meat and three veg every night. The biggest deal in terms of meat that you could do was to kill, he says, the singular fattened calf. You didn't just do this for one meal for your family. You invited the community around. There is so much celebrating. Anyone who cares, anyone who's close to this father is in there again celebrating. We have to because the son of mine was dead and is alive. They are dancing. Everyone is celebrating except for one person. And this is where the message starts to come home like a spear in the heart for Jesus' religious listeners. Because it's been hard enough for them up until now to listen to the hero of the story, the father, being doing exactly the opposite of what they would do, welcoming someone who is just so disgustingly, religiously unclean. He's a, look at the kid. How hard is it now when Jesus brings the third character back into the story and he is representing them, and he is so far from the hero of the story. Look at what the younger brother, the, the, sorry, the older brother, how he responds to his brother coming home. Verse 25, meanwhile, the older son was out in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? The servant says, your brother has come, and your father's killed the fattened calf. Because he's come back safe and sound. The older brother became angry. Word can be translated wrath. Think just furious. And he refused to go in. Everyone in the town is in dancing with the father. Anyone who cares about the father is sharing his joy. 
and his oldest son, whose job it is in the family to care for the father, is not in the house. He is pouting outside with his arms folded in a putrid attitude. And once again, this incredible father humbles himself. How embarrassing to have to leave the party, have to leave his community and go out and try and plead with his petulant son. But he does exactly that. He pleads with him to come in. How does the the older brother respond then? Have a look at verse 29. But he answered his father, look. It's like saying, look, buddy. It's it's disrespectful to to a patriarch. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you Never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. When the son of yours who squandered your property, this son of yours doesn't even, can't even bring himself to say my brother. This son of yours squanders your property, comes home, you kill the fattened calf. He got it. He, he, you make this the biggest celebration we could possibly have. And this is so prickly for Jesus' religious listeners. Because remember, this is the picture of them in the story. The older brother is the Pharisee in the story, the religious teacher of the law in the story, who in real life had been looking down on the sinners. He was the, the good kid. He's the one who ticked all the boxes. And think the religious leaders of Jesus' day had pages of boxes to tick, and they thought that they ticked them all. Just like he says... I've I've slaved for you, he says to his father. I've never disobeyed you. And to a lesser extent, I think the average Kiwi can be very similar. We we would answer, or or the average Kiwi would answer if you were to ask them, why why should you be allowed into heaven? Why should God accept you? What would the average answer be? It would be, I'm a good person. I've lived a good life. And that's quite true. We live relatively good lives. And if we pick the right people to compare ourselves to, we live awesome lives. We handpick who we want. We have, perhaps if we're really good, we've obeyed all of the orders. But that's just not the economy that God deals in. And so Jesus' message here, who's with the Father? It's the people in the room dancing with him, celebrating with him, rejoicing with him. In the story is estranged from the Father. It's the really obedient, religious, judgmental guy. The Pharisee equivalent guy. Chuck Swindle says it like this about the the younger brother's speech. He says, his brash speech reveals a profound sense of entitlement. He didn't serve and obey his father out of love, but for what he stood to gain. He obviously kept meticulous records. He tried to reduce the father-son relationship to a system of rewards in exchange for services rendered. Consequently, his attitude put him on the level of employee rather than son. God is not after employees. God doesn't rejoice over the return of an employee. God rejoices over the return of a lost child. Chapter finishes with the father saying so gently, my son, literally my my child, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead. He's alive again. He was lost and he's found. Full stop. 
Which way does he go? We don't know. Does he, does he stay outside pouting and angry and, and, and surly about his brother being accepted? Or does he go inside, join the party, join his father? We don't know. Cliffhanger. And I think that's exactly how Jesus wanted it because he's trying to send a message to the Pharisees who he's actually talking to. Which way will you guys go? I think there's another reason as well why Jesus might finish the story with an example of such a, a lousy older brother. Because there's a literary technique, a teaching technique we call a foil, where in a, in a story, one character's qualities are contrasted with another character's qualities to highlight how good or bad one is. Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader kind of thing. The foil, interestingly in this story, to the older brother is to a degree the father. But can I suggest that in the brilliance of Jesus' teaching? The real foil to the older brother is not actually in the story. It's the author. The real foil to the older brother is Jesus himself. Because what would a perfect older brother have done? Perfect older brother sees his father's heart broken and he leaves home to travel as far as he needs to. He gives up the company and the love of his father to travel as far as he needs to, to seek and to save his lost younger brother. And he does whatever he has to. He pays whatever price he needs to to bring that younger brother back to the father. And then he celebrates with the father when they both get home. Does it sound similar? It's exactly what Jesus did for us. Who has traveled further to seek and to save his lost brothers and sisters? Who gave more? Who paid a greater price? When Jesus described what he did when he came to earth, he says that he paid a ransom, paid with his life to buy us out of slavery, just to take us back to the Father. And all we have to do is accept that offer that he will take us back to the Father. He will take us back home to where we need to be. And so we get to the end of the chapter, and just like the Pharisees are left scratching their heads saying, which, which way does the younger son go? Which way should he go? Which way am I going to go? We have to ask the same question, because this is a real issue for us today as well. We might be like a younger son, and all of us, I think, are at some stage where cut off from God because of our badness. Equally so, we can be like a Pharisee looking at ourselves thinking we're so good, God owes me. I deserve heaven. Jesus would say, you are cut off from God because of your goodness. Because no one gets to heaven on their merit. No one is accepted by God, welcomed by God based on his or her merit. Everyone gets to God by grace. And if this is something you've never heard before, or perhaps this morning this is something that you've wrestled with and you think, yep, I, I, I want to respond. I want to respond to Jesus taking me back to the Father. I love the idea of being welcomed, accepted by God. It's what it means to become a Christian. I just want to share a, a brief prayer with you. There's nothing mystical, magical about this prayer. But if there is anyone here and... 
you might have been coming to church for years and you've never made this step. You might be a visitor, you might never have heard this before. No pressure at all. But if this prayer, if the idea of entrusting yourself to Jesus, of being welcomed and accepted, becoming a child of God, if that resonates and is attractive to you, can I just plead with you? Just do that. Entrust yourself to Jesus. And, and this prayer is, is, again, not magic words. It's an example of what you might pray to do that. So I'm, I'm just going to pray through this now. You don't have to stand up, pray it out loud, draw any attention to yourself. If you want to close your eyes, that's cool. I'm just going to pray it. And if it is meaningful to you, can I just ask? Just echo it or, or put it in your own words and just say it to God. Lord Jesus, I admit that I haven't lived as I should. I've lived away from God. Thank you for coming to save me. Thank you for taking my punishment on the cross. I entrust myself to you. Please forgive me, accept me, and guide me as I live my life with you. Can I just ask again, not to put you under any pressure or embarrass you, but if, if you did, if you prayed that this morning, can I just ask that please tell someone here that that's what you've done. Not, we're not going to make you stand up. We're not going to give you a AP form to take money off you, anything like that. But we would just, if you have, you've just done the most important thing you can ever do in your life. What is bigger? Is there anything bigger than getting right with God? Is there any better news? There is just nothing bigger. So we'd just love to, to know that, to celebrate, to just help you answer any questions that you have. For, I imagine, the bulk of you who have already done this possibly multiple times over the years, What's the message for us? What's the, what's the kind of application, if you like, for us? I know it's warm this morning. I'm getting to the end. What, what do we do with this? This year, one of our big themes is going to be an outward-looking year. We're, we're going to still look after each other. We're still going to look up to God. But we want to, again, turn our, our focus just up a degree looking outward. I want to have a bigger focus on that. And, and today, I don't want to give you any lists, any techniques, any methods, anything like that. You're not going to sign up to anything. Because today's passage is not so much about that. But what today's passage is about is about the heart of a father who just welcomes his son home. Thinking again about the context, about the example of a God who not only accepts, not only welcomes, but who parties when his lost children come home. And that's exactly the, what we should be too. Application, when you look at pretty much any story, is you say, what do the heroes do? Who are the heroes of this story? One of them we talked about, the hidden hero is Jesus. The other one is the father. Look at this father's heart. How could Jesus have described any more such a beautiful father who humbly gives when he's asked, who patiently waits when he has to, who scans the horizon, who runs when it's undignified to do that, who hugs, who kisses, who embraces, who welcomes, who forgives, and who parties. God, the real God who exists, that we love, who we call father, is a God who when his children return to him, he parties. And he calls us to have the same heart. That's the whole point of the whole chapter. Jesus partied with people who were looked down on, thought of as sinners, because that's what his father did. 
as we go into this year, I just want that today to be our prayer. Would we be a people who just love the thought of partying because sinners have come home? I just want to pray for us that we would do that now. Today is about our hearts, so can you join with me? Let's pray. Almighty Father, we, we just are so grateful to you. You are just beautiful off the Richter scale, beautiful off the charts, off the radar. And when your son just paints a picture of, this, of you like this, we are just so amazed. Uh, you're so beautiful. And we just love this thought that you party, you rejoice, you celebrate, and the angels around you celebrate when a lost child returns to you, repents, and comes home to you. And as we go into a new year, uh, and as we up our focus on this as well, I just pray, would you help us to have hearts like your heart, that we would show extra, extraordinary care, that we would look for situations to be able to care, to speak, to share our faith, to sow seeds, to look for opportunities to talk about you. But start with our hearts. Give us the love for the people around us that we need. Give us the courage to be used by you. We just love this thought. You're a partying God when your children come back to you. Please make us a partying people when that happens. Amen.